Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know, I always love it when we get to meet together because we stay so cut up and separated, living in our own silos. And so it's always fun when on these midsummer celebratory times, we can kind of have everybody in the same room. But it's also fun for me to watch because the second worship crowd comes rolling in a little bit late and the early crowd, you guys beat them to the punch. And so you're sitting in their seats and I'm watching families walk around going, I don't know where to sit. Somebody's in my seat. So, (laughs) so that's been kind of fun. You know, I love 4th of July. I love everything about this great country, the greatest country that's ever been conceived in the mind of men. What a beautiful, beautiful place that God has allowed us to live and be free. And I'll always be grateful for the fact that I was born in America. I had nothing to do with it. And I've done a little bit of traveling. And everywhere you go, you're just always glad to get home because this is the greatest place ever. And so God bless America. And I'm always grateful for all the people who sacrificed so much so that I can do what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you, in Myanmar right now, I'm teaching Burmese pastors on Wednesday nights, and we got an urgent uh, request out uh, this week. While I was on vacation, I got a text that uh, the government is cracking down again, and the people aren't safe, and they don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, people live like that. And so thank God we have the freedom to do what we do right now for as long as we have it. Because the fact of the matter is, this nation that we love so much is changing. Um, And things that we always held dear are no longer the same. We live now not so much in a Christian culture, as I've said many times, but in a post-Christian culture. And because of that, by virtue of that, fewer people than ever live free. Now, I'm not talking about having constitutional freedom. I'm talking about personal freedom. Because they become enslaved to sin. And so this really tragic irony that you live in the freest nation that ever existed on the face of the planet, and yet it is filled with people who are enslaved, and depression, despair, and all the corresponding pathologies that go along with that are in play in this world we live in today. Um, Because our nation isn't free. It's enslaved to sin. And look, no red, white, and blue flag can change that. But the gospel can change it. And so rather than talking about flags this morning, I want to talk about the cross, the gospel, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pick up our Bibles and let's go to John. We've been studying the gospel of John, John being one of the 12 disciples of Christ, having written this beautiful book to sort of fill in the blanks of what was missing in the other three Gospels. And last time we started this conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to Jesus. And and, and when you think about it, in this single conversation, you have both that brilliant concept, you must be born again, the idea, the whole theological underpinnings of what it is to be transformed. You have to be born again. In that same conversation without break, you also have that beautiful verse that we see, you know, on posters and billboards and football stadiums on Tim Tebow's iPads, John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, this could well be the single most important conversation that ever occurred in the history of humanity as this man, this seeker, this man named Nicodemus, has come to Jesus with some honest questions, and Jesus, through this, is giving him these profound truths. Last time we looked at the first part of it, you know, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, uh, it starts out. He was a Pharisee, which of course was one of the Jewish sects, and they were committed, deeply committed to trying to fulfill the Ten Commandments, so committed that they had created other books to, to sort of supplement the Ten Commandments so that they could uh, sort of live up to every standard that they had. And then they try to apply that to everyone else and force everybody into that same legalism. And then it says he was a ruler, which means he was on the council, which ran literally all of the religious and, and day-to-day uh, activities of every Jew around the world. He was on the Sanhedrin, and he came to Jesus by night because he had some questions he wanted to ask of Jesus, but he didn't necessarily want to have to answer questions that would be asked of him by the other Pharisees. And so he opened the conversation with a compliment. He said, you know, I can tell that you're from God, a teacher, Because nobody can do this stuff that you do unless God was with him. It's a compliment that he gives. And, you know, Jesus cuts right to the chase. He doesn't really discuss that at all. He doesn't, he just defers it and deflects it completely. And he says, look, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And the first time I read that and the third time I read it and the hundredth time I read it, I always thought that Jesus was just being dismissive and curt. You know, let's cut to the chase. I don't have time for this conversation. Look, you've got to be born again. And that's how I always read it, and it would make sense because Nicodemus was a representative of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus got into the most conflict with. It was the Pharisees who would ultimately condemn Jesus to death on the cross. So if if Jesus was a little impatient with this guy, it would make perfect sense. I don't really want to talk to you about this. Just look, you got to be born again. But then I read it clearly, and I think the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to it, and I see this compassionate compassionate, sensitive presentation of grace. And by the way, when we talk with people who are on the other side of our political or cultural position, say it with kindness and grace. That's what you see in Jesus. You see, Nicodemus had spent his lifetime enslaved to sin, and and he had done everything within his power to try to compensate for that, to find forgiveness. He'd kept all the rules. He'd battled the sin. He had repented over and over again. I happen to believe that Nicodemus probably was baptized by John the Baptist as well for repentance of sin. And yet he still knew and he still struggled with and he was still racked by the fact that nothing he could do would in any way compensate for what he had already done. And so he's living with this nagging sense of shame and guilt and feelings uh, that God is uh, this brutal dictator who's going to punish him in the end, and he can't find his way out of that. And that might be where you are right now. Uh, Can God really forgive me? I mean, when when you really get honest with that deep, dark secret, that silent cry... And you say, in my case, you know, does God really still love me? And I think that's where Nicodemus was. On the outside, I mean, he looked great, just like we all look great. I look great right now. Well, maybe not so great. I look the best I can. This is it. This, this, Matt, this is as good as I get. You know what I'm saying? It don't get no better. But 
You guys don't know the real me, and I don't know the real you. And the fact of the matter is, here's Nicodemus struggling, and Jesus essentially says, look, freedom's not going to come from knowing more and doing better. You've been trying that your whole life, and it doesn't work. If you want to find redemption and healing, you have to be born again. And and Nicodemus is like, and I didn't get this until I read it for the hundredth time either. Nicodemus is like, yeah, I get it. I I mean, I get it. I'd love a do-over. But how can we be reborn? I mean, you can't just crawl back into your mom's womb, right? And Jesus said, you got to be born of the water that's representative of John's baptism, which is the baptism of repentance, and you've got to be born of the Spirit, and that's representative of Jesus' baptism, which is the baptism of transformation. And both of those elements are in play. Both of these two elements are in play in salvation. There is always repentance and belief. I have to turn from my sin as I turn to Christ. And both of those things are going on. And and the problem with Nicodemus and the problem with all of the Pharisees was they were all about repentance. Like, I'm going this way. I know there's sin. Everybody in my world, it's all about sin. It's all about judgment. It's all about the wrath of God. So I'm going to turn from my sin, but they never turned to Christ. And so even when he's face to face with the Messiah, he's still struggling with belief. And so in the second part of this conversation, Jesus really presses him to believe. And this is really the point of it. Because until you believe, you just will never see. You know, we like to make this statement, I'll believe it when I see it. But when it comes to faith, the exact opposite is true. You will see it when you believe it. And that's the second theme of this conversation with Nicodemus. So here's what Jesus said, starting in uh, verse 7. First he says, you have to experience it to see it. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now watch this, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now that word spirit is, is an interesting word. It's the word pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumatic. It's, it could be translated three ways. It could be translated spirit, pneuma. It could be translated wind, or it could be translated breath. There's sort of a, a triple meaning to that. And isn't it interesting that when God created Adam, the Bible says that when he created him, he, how did he bring him to life? He breathed life into Adam. And when we are breathed life into us, he breathes the spirit of life. And when we are reborn, how are we reborn? He breathes new life into us, the spirit of God. The first time you receive the spirit of life, the second time you receive the spirit of God. But in both cases, it happens through the spirit, through the breath, right? But it's also kind of like the wind. He said, the spirit's like the wind. You you know, you can't tell where it came from. You have no idea where it's going. You can only really see where it's been and you can feel its power. A few weeks ago, I live in a pecan orchard, an old pecan orchard. Uh, we lived there 22 years, you know, kind of planted in the pecan orchard. And, and you know what they say about pecan trees? They're self-pruning. Do you know what that means? That means every time there's a wind, limbs break. 
And a big wind came through a couple of weeks ago and literally broke one of these giant, they said these pecan trees in my backyard were planted in 1906. And some of them are like 100 feet tall. And, and it broke half of this tree. I promise, I'm not exaggerating. Ask my kids. The, the base of that limb part of that tree was this big. And it broke. It was in my neighbor's yard, but it fell in my yard all the way. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, I don't know where that wind came from. And I don't know where that wind is going. But I can see where it's been. And it's powerful. The same is true of spiritual rebirth. We can't see it, but we can see the result of it. Here's the principle. The, the spirit life isn't always predictable, but it's always powerful. And you have to experience it to understand it. Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can these things be? I mean, he has spent his life studying the things of God. He's been in the books. He's been teaching the teaching of the books. He knows every jot and tittle, every letter, every comma, every... He, the guy's memorized probably most of the Old Testament. It's his stock and trade. It's all he does, and yet he doesn't understand the Spirit. Verse 10, Jesus answered him and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? How is it that you're a spiritual teacher and yet you know so little about the things of the Spirit? Because he had dedicated himself to two wrong assumptions. The first is God can be known through the acquisition of information. That's the first wrong assumption. And the second wrong assumption is God can be appeased by maintaining certain behavior. That's the second wrong assumption. In other words, no more do better. And man, I look at the church today, and that's the way the church tends to want to function. If we could just know more and just do better, then somehow we're going to know enough to know who God is, and we're going to somehow do enough to make Him happy with us. And that's the trap of the legalist. Look at verse 11, truly, truly. And remember, when Jesus wanted to say something important, He would say, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. In other words, you talk all the time about repentance. You talk all the time about getting right with God, but you just won't believe. Um, and Jesus said, we talk about what we know, and we live in a world of spiritual experience, because if you haven't experienced the Spirit, then you can't understand the Spirit. I, I don't know of any other way to tell you that. I can't communicate it in any other way. If, if you haven't experienced it, I heard this story one time. I assume it's true. There, there was uh, the University of Chicago. I don't know if you knew this, but the University of Chicago was actually founded as a Baptist school. They didn't call it a Baptist college. They called it the University of Chicago. It was funded by John D. Rockefeller. And John D. Rockefeller was an old Baptist, you know, of course, the richest man that I think America ever produced. And Rockefeller... Uh, had fallen in love with Harry Emerson Fosdick, and he loved his teaching. And Fosdick, of course, was this sort of classic liberal, rank liberalism. So when they found this school, they founded it on classic liberalism. So basically, it's dead on arrival, right? Theologically, the school's already dead. They're going to hire a bunch of German uh, philosopher theologians who don't really believe the Bible, one of which was Paul Tillich. And, and in order to sort of maintain this facade of, uh, you know, orthodox Christianity, they, uh, 
they would have Baptist Day and they would invite all these pastors in and then one of the famous lecturers would get up and he would, you know, pontificate on some thing that he doesn't really understand. And Tillich, it was Tillich's day. Now, Tillich was a brilliant, brilliant guy. I mean, uh, just absolutely classic liberal, ex existentialist, but in reality, uh, pretty much a practicing agnostic. You know, that's what you become when you really stop believing, a practicing agnostic. And he was giving a lecture on the resurrection, which was ironic because Tillich didn't believe in the resurrection. He believed in a spiritualized form of the resurrection. So he, you know, goes on for an hour or so on, on talking about the resurrection, which he doesn't really believe in, um, as if it were some sort of, you know, it's not really that the resurrection happened. It's that the resurrection symbolizes new hope that we have when we uh, uh, walk in the teaching of Jesus, you know, and they sort of demythologized the Bible and all that stuff. They went with the old German uh, classic liberalism. And when he had finished speaking, they had this question and answer thing with all these pastors. And this one old pastor stands up. And in the story, it's this, it's this uh, older black pastor. And he says, uh, Dr. Tillich, I got one question. And everybody sort of turns and looks at him. And he reaches into his paper sack lunch and he pulls out an apple and he starts to eat it. He says, Dr. Tillich, crunch, munch. My question is a simple question. Crunch, munch. Now, I ain't ever read them books you read. Crunch, munch. And I can't recite the scripture in the original Greek. Crunch, munch. I don't know nothing about Niebuhr or Heidegger or Slymacher. Crunch, munch. He finished the apple. And he said, all I want to know is this. This apple I just ate, was it bitter or sweet? Dr. Tillich paused and then replied, I can't possibly answer that question. I haven't tasted your apple. And the old preacher dropped the core of the apple into his crumpled paper bag, looked up at Tillich and calmly said, neither have you tasted my Jesus. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know any other way to say it. Look what Jesus said in verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Because to understand these things is to experience them. To, 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 to see it is to experience it, right? And the only man that's ever experienced heaven is the person who's already been there and now he's come to earth and he's standing right in front of you. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. In other words, you spent your whole life trying to no more do better, and it is a big fat zero. Because it's not enough to know, and it's not enough to try. You have to experience it to see it. And here's the second thing, and it's the only other thing I see here. You won't experience it until you believe it. We like to say, hey, I'll believe it when I see it. That's not how faith works. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substantiation, and that word means substantiator. It calls into being that which exists in the spiritual, making it real in the physical. It says, uh, faith substantiates that which I believe. And so you won't experience it until you believe it. Verse 14, as Moses lift up the, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And this is a reference to a time in Deuteronomy, I mean in Numbers 21, uh, uh, really verses 6 through 9, you can read it later, but the Jews had gotten in trouble again, you know. 
Somebody said the Jews are like everyone else, only more so. So they got in trouble again with God, and he got mad, and this time he sends the snakes, and they've got snakes, and the snakes are biting them, and they're dying. So Moses has this bronze serpent cast, and then Moses would hold the serpent up, and if you got bit by a snake and you looked up at Moses, you would survive the snake bite. And so Jesus draws an allusion to that, which is an obvious typology of the cross. He says, as the Son of Man is lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent, you see, In other words, Nicodemus, you have to stop trying to achieve it and you have to be willing to believe it. Nothing that those people did in looking at Moses facilitated the hope of life and the the prevention of judgment, which was through the serpents. It was simply their belief in the fact that Moses was the answer at that moment. And that's what he's saying to them. So that whoever believes in him, this is the core and crux of it, verse 15, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so there's the key. The second we believe, we experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And now we come to that beautiful verse we've heard so many times. 3.16. Watch what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that word doesn't mean his firstborn son or his first son of many. It means it's monogenes. It's not just the one son, but it's the unique son. The the one and only. There's never been another one like it. He gave him, and that word gave, gave means to give over completely Not just that he gave you like a gift and maybe you could enjoy it, but he gave him up. So it's not just talking about the incarnation. It's talking about the the crucifixion and the cross and the resurrection. God, so driven by love for the whole world, not just one group of people, not just people who look like us, not just people who we think share our values or talk like us, the whole world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? There it is. Here's what I'm pressing for, Nicodemus. You've tried repentance. You've repented and repented and repented. And you've tried performance and you've worked and worked and worked. None of that works. So what works? Whoever, what? Believes. This is where he's trying to get him to. Shall not perish. What is Nicodemus afraid of? Perishing. It's so ironic that this legalist who has spent his whole life trying to earn God's approval through his performance is filled with the fear of perishing. He's so afraid of perishing. And he just lifts his heart. Some of you are there right now. Like if I were to ask you, do you know for certain that if you were to die right now, you'd go spend eternity with God in heaven? Most of you would say, man, I hope so. Or many of you would, man, I hope so. I'm doing the best I can. And you know what you just told me? I fear perishing. But you'll have eternal life. And you know what I read in this? God's reaction to your sin is love. Here's what Nicodemus heard, maybe for the first time. God is not some strict disciplinarian with a stick behind his back ready to whack you. That's how Nicodemus always saw him. I'll be honest with you, that's how I always saw him. You know, right after I got saved, I got saved in a conservative Baptist church, wonderful church. I love that church. 
But this church was really bought into this guy named Bill Gothard. If you, if you care to, to see it, uh, Gothard's a part of a, uh, uh, th- there's a Netflix documentary right now called Shiny, Smiley, Happy People, something like that. And Gothard's teaching was very legalistic. So here I am, a 17-year-old, hardcore pagan, coming into this weird Christian world that was nothing like... I mean, I went from like Led Zeppelin and Boston and, you know, Aerosmith to the Gaither family trio, you know? It was like, where am I? What is this? And then they take me to one of these conferences and I sit down and listen for hours to this guy talking about legalism, legalism, everything was about submission and punishment and wrath of God and all this stuff. And I came out more fearful than I went in, you know, and I told a friend of mine, I said, I don't think I can do this. And he he was like, well, don't worry about it. Just do as much as you can. I said, I don't think that's the way he's describing it. I think you got to do it all or nothing. Everything was based on punishment and fear. And I remember talking to one of my college roommates a few years later, Matt Barnhill, who didn't have any fear. He needs some more fear. Those of you that have been on the marriage retreats with him. And I I said, man, I think I do everything I do in my relationship with God out of a sense of fear and guilt. And man, he was very instrumental in helping me to find freedom and grace. That's where Nicodemus was. I mean... That's where Jesus is. Read the story of the prodigal son. That son that goes out and wastes the inheritance and lives terrible and winds up on a pig farm. I mean, what Jewish boy wants to wind up on a pig farm? What Jewish daddy wants his boy to wind up on a pig farm? And then the the guy finally comes to himself, says, I'm going to go home to my daddy. And he's he's walking to his daddy. He he rehearses what he's going to say. Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but make me as one of your servants. But before he got those words out of his mouth, he looked up and his daddy was running to him. And God is the father in that story. He was running. How does God respond to our sin? He runs to us. The minute we turn to Him, He runs to us. That's the only time you see God run. I mean, as we study, John, we're going to see the woman at the well, and she runs into Jesus, and she's had five husbands. The guy she's living with is not her husband. This is a woman with, this is a she woman with a he problem. And he loved her. Jesus loved her and was kind and gracious and patient. The woman caught in adultery, same thing. You know, in all those cases... God always responds to our sin with love. And all He requires of us is belief. It's all about belief. Look, you won't see it until you experience it, and you won't experience it until you believe it. You don't see it to believe it. You believe it to see it. And man, Nicodemus is standing there thunderstruck. His whole world of self-help, legalism was crumbling around him, and the love of God was offering him grace, and all he had to do was accept it. Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. By the way, church, our job isn't to judge the world. Our job is to love the world. For God so loved the world, He didn't come to judge the world, that the world might be saved through Him. So He offers grace, not judgment. He who believes in Him is not judged. The minute we believe in Jesus, we're not judged. You know what? You know why that's such good news? Because if you are judged, you will fail We have this idea, maybe I'll be acquitted. You won't be. You will be condemned. So our only hope is to not be judged, and and that happens the moment I believe I'm no longer judged. 
right? I, I was talking to this lady and she, she was kind of struggling with what heaven was going to be like. And she's like, I think, I think maybe I'll still cry in heaven. I'm like, why? And, and she was like, you know, I just, I'd done so many things. One of them was she was so hard on her kids. And, and she's like, I just, you know, I know God will forgive me, but I don't think he'll forgive me of everything. And it was so sad to hear that. I'm like, he either forgives you of everything or he forgives you of nothing. That's what grace is. That's the power of grace. Listen to John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, has passed out of death into life. The minute I trust in Christ, I'm not judged. But look at the other side of that. Look at what it says. Verse uh, 17, he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who don't believe are already judged. You're already dead. You know, you're not waiting to die. You're not waiting to be judged. You're already judged. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin because we have this nature to sin and it's in us all. Like when my kids were little, I remember one time, I was, Micah had this real separation anxiety thing when he was little bitty, like two years old. He never liked to be away from Amy. And, and so if Amy would leave, he'd get kind of anxious. And one time he and his older brother Matthew were watching TV and I'm watching them and I'm listening to them. And Micah suddenly realizes Amy's gone and he goes, Matthew, where's mom? And he said, and Matthew goes, she left. <laughs> and Micah goes, where did she go? And Matthew said, she's gone. She's not coming back for a week. <laughs> and Micah goes, you're mean, Matthew. And I remember hearing that going, that little rat is just deviling his little brother. You know, somebody said one time that little boys reach a time in the day where they tire of playing with grasshoppers, and that's when they pull their wings off. And I think that's what he was doing. I'm like, where did he get that? And I'll tell you where he got it. He got it from his old man. It's called the sin nature. And we all sin. And the wages of sin is death. And the only thing that's good, it's not like we're waiting to die. It's that we're, we need to be brought back to life. And belief is the only thing that will bring you back. Look at what he says. This is judgment. Verse 19, that the light came into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. What a tragedy. And you want to know why America is so enslaved in this land of the free, home of the brave, which is filled with enslaved cowards? Because they won't come to the light. It's not like they're going to die. It's, they're already dead. Spiritually, they're already dead. And the Holy Spirit brings us to life. The moment we believe, we experience. And the moment we experience, we see it as, the God, as God breathes new life into us. Look at what he says in verse 21. That he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought by God. And I think that's so interesting how he's playing off of Nicodemus' performance-centered idea of salvation. And he's saying his deeds become manifest as being wrought by God, not by himself. Remember, he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And I also think it's interesting that he's using this light analogy and darkness analogy because what's going on outside? What's going on in the middle of this conversation right now? Where is it? It's nighttime. It's dark. 
And here's a dark man who's come at a dark time seeking light. And Jesus said, the minute you believe, you'll see the light. I love what Adrian Rogers said. He said it this way, God accepts you, that's grace. You accept God's, you accept God's acceptance, that's faith. You accept yourself, that's peace. And then you accept others, that's love. You have to experience that to see it, and you'll never see it until you believe it. So, have you believed it? I mean, are you Nicodemus? Have your life filled with guilt and shame and you don't know what to do with it? Well, this is a good time to deal with it. We want to give you the opportunity to do that. In just a minute, uh, they're going to come out and sing a song. To be honest with you, I don't know who's coming, Matt or Blake. I have no idea. Somebody, somebody's coming. And we want to invite you, if you need to believe Jesus today, I've got nobody at that Belong Center, and I've got nobody at that one, but by the time you get there, they'll be there. And they want to help you in any way you can to know for certain that you have eternal life in Jesus. Don't leave this place. You live in the freest nation that ever, that ever existed, but you're not free because you haven't dealt with your sin. It's not enough to repent. You have to believe. And when you believe, you see. Would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the liberty that we find in Christ. Thank you that you alone are the one who can set us free. And so, Father, we, we love this country and we'll wave the flag. But when it comes for freedom, we look not to the flag, but to the cross. And we're looking to the cross right now. And there are people here right now as we've walked through this beautiful conversation between Jesus and this troubled man, Nicodemus. And they see in this, they see themselves, they realize, that's me. I've got to find freedom. So in this moment, Heavenly Father, would you give them that freedom as they just say, God, I, best I understand, I don't know all the answers. I don't even know the right words to say, but here's, here's the words I say. God, I give you my life. I confess my sin and I receive Jesus through belief. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand together? Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.